Hello, this is Bill Curley. And Holly Hudley. And welcome to the podcast In Between, which is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church and Ordinary Life. So, I, Holly, I've been thinking about getting into this podcast today by um, telling a, a, a story. I'd love for you to tell a story. And um, I think that the world went down a path of terrible dualism with Descartes. Yes. Well, yeah. and it was initiated even before Descartes. Descartes embodied what was already happening. You know, there was Plato's idea of the good and the good was out here and the humane or the human was down here. And Eros was the farrier between the good and the human, right? So that was started, this dualism was started long before Descartes. Descartes just named it. He named it and and what he said was that uh, I think, therefore I am. And that's a big problem, mm-hmm. in ter- especially in terms of doing spiritual work. Mm-hmm. Reads all sorts of divisions and righteousness and that sort of thing. So here's the story. Mm-hmm. Descartes goes into a bar and sits down and orders a martini. And he is reading some book of philosophy, making notes while he's doing this. And he finishes his drink and the bartender comes up and said, would you like another? And he says, I think not. And he disappears. <laughs> <laughs> So we're going to dedicate this podcast to not thinking. Well, it, it's like I'm, I'm thinking, um, although we've sort of already come up with a title for this coming Sunday, I'm thinking about offering another title. It's too late now because it's already in print. Uh, but I was thinking about that uh, real spirituality is all about non-self-improvement. Because there is no self, and therefore nothing there to is improve. No self, and we we have <laughs> yes. to, we have to get at that part. So, um, you know, I think one of our viewers um, Sunday rightly called me, you, us to task for not continuing to lift up the trauma that the um, pandemic is yeah. causing. I, w- I want to speak to that uh, this Sunday. The fact that right now, I think, if I can read the chart from the Texas Medical Center correctly, Houston has become the new hotspot for COVID cases. I mean, are the next two weeks in Houston, Texas are going to be very traumatic. I have talked to two doctors in the last 48 hours who have indicated we're heading into a real crisis. So in this um in this time of trauma where uh we really are in a time of descent and disintegration and revelation you call it apocalypse Mm -hmm. um i think that we are being ushered or kicked into an absolutely new reality that is quite frightening for almost everyone we don't know what, as you said Sunday, we don't know what's going to happen. And um, we are undergoing a a radical alteration of the sense of who we are in this this time. And um, 
I think I think you said it Sunday as we were winding up that we are approaching a realization that things are never going to be like they were. Yeah. And so this uh, this disorientation that we are all enduring is can really be seen as a great opportunity to redefine who we are and and uh, meet the challenges of inclusivity to try our best to eradicate the boundaries between us and them. Right. And it's just such a challenge because it's so easy to fall into um, thinking and behaviors that contribute to division rather than to healing. Right. Yeah. And I think that's part of being disoriented, right? Is not knowing exactly what direction to go in. I, I am, I remember when I was younger, when I was a camper at a camp, I can't remember if it was called survival or if it was whatever it was, we had to go in the woods with a compass and a map and as, and the campers were in charge of finding our way out. Right. So we had to learn number one, how to be comfortable with being disoriented. And then we had to use the tools that we had to become reoriented. Um, toward a path of freedom from the woods, right? And that required us as campers to rely on each other. Um, natural leaders emerged. So some emerged as um, capable of reading a compass well. Some emerged as capable of reading a map well. Some emerged as taking care of the group well, making the s'mores or bringing out the hot dogs or the trail mix when needed. So as young people, we had to sort of allow these natural gifts to emerge mm -hmm. and to rely on them in the moment. And no camper ever died doing this. <laughs> we managed to do it. We had adults who were kind of on the peripheral who really, their, their whole job was to support mm -hmm. us in allowing our leadership to come forward. And I, I think of that because when you don't have a table constructed in the middle of the woods, let's say, but you have a group of people who are like, how are we going to get out of this position? How are we going to get out of this disoriented state that we're in? We sort of slowly start to build a table. We start to reimagine a table. We start to use different tools than we had. We start to, um, or maybe we whittle the table down to nothing at all. We whittle it down to sawdust, to just the elements, and we rebuild something entirely new. And I think in the moment of being in the woods, we're never sure what it's going to look like to get out, what tools we're going to have to use, and what sort of patterns are going to emerge from it. And I think that's exactly where we are right now. Um, as you just said, you know, we're in the time of dissent. And I also think back to what Terry said about being comfortable with discomfort. I'm also thinking about Eddie Gloud, and he's a professor yeah. at Princeton. And he spoke at uh, Jeremy Rutledge's church last fall, and Jeremy sent me the link, and I've been listening to the, call, to the talk. But in one of his readings, he, he spoke about we don't need to remake something using the same tools. We need to completely break it 
and imagine something new, Mm -hmm. completely deform the form that we have and imagine something new. And the fear of that is always that somebody's going to lose. Well, and, and ideologically speaking, there are people who need to lose. Um, I'm thinking about something that some, someone uh, texted me today about a young person who uh, says, I'll give you a quote, Aunt Jemima was canceled. She was the picture of the American dream. She was a freed slave who went on to be the face of the pancake syrup. Now, I don't know whether that's historically accurate or not, but that's, that's a racist comment. And, and, and so I really struggle with how do we call out racist comments and racist behavior and still create a place at the table for those people? How do you do that? Right. Yeah, I think that's, that's where we have to lean on what we understand of right view that leads into um, right attitude that leads into right speech, right? I don't think that there's relativism in saying, um, saying all behaviors and all beliefs are okay. I think there is a demand that we ca- we call something what it is without adding layers of judgment to it. You know, we call something, you know, when you say something like that, it is racist. It doesn't mean that we push that person away, but we still say there's accountability here. That one of the great stories I heard once about a young monk who was struggling with a Buddhist monk who was struggling with what his compassion project in the world was going to be. And he goes to his mentor, his elder, and he's like, I really don't know what to do. I I feel, I feel stuck. And so his mentor says, well, just start praying, just start meditating. So what this young monk starts doing is he starts going to a prison where violent crime prisoners are kept. And he gathers the folders of these prisoners and he starts meditating over these folders. He starts meditating over the folders of the people who are imprisoned who have committed heinous crimes, probably some some of the worst you can imagine. But he starts meditating with love and compassion. He doesn't say what you have done is okay. He says, but I love you anyway. And that's like that tension to find, right? How do we find that tension to say, what you just said is not okay, and I love you anyway. That seems to me an incredibly difficult balance to hold right now, when if we say to someone, what you just said is racist, that immediately puts up defenses. It can be a real shutdown but how do we call it what it is mm-hmm. while also saying, I love you anyway. So I just handed the question back to you. <laughs> well, uh, my, my real fear is that we will 
not take advantage of this moment that we're in, that we will um, mm -hmm. somehow say this is too difficult and we will try to revert to something else. But I, I don't think that can happen. I think um, I heard Van Jones, the commentator, you know him? Mm -hmm. uh, African-American guy, I really like the way that he thinks and the way that he puts things forward. He said, you know, we have, he's speaking now for the African-American community, black community. He's saying, we have been waiting for this moment for ever. Mm -hmm. And so I think that African-American people are seeing this as a defining moment, as a real opportunity that things could be very, very, very different for us. And, and I don't want to lose that because we give up on thinking that it's just too hard. And yet there are some thoughts and behaviors that are absolutely wrong. They are demeaning to the human spirit and they're demeaning to human dignity and they should be stopped. That's right. And uh, how do we go about educating people about that? And right. um, maybe we, it, it, you know, I, I had somebody say, uh, a teacher of mine a long time ago, when we were talking about dealing with grief and loss, he said, dealing with grief is is uh, getting comfortable sitting in the ashes. And I, I want to say, I have said to some of my white friends who are, can get their hackles up about things not being the way they were, uh, I think it's time for white people mostly to shut up and to listen, maybe talk among ourselves like this and to strategize, but um, just to listen. Yeah, I think it's also time to introspect, you know, to say, where, where have I participated? Where have I benefited? Um, where am I willing to show up? Mm -hmm. And what's sustainable for me? You know, I think there's no doubt that there's a giant spectrum of the active racist who's committed to racist ideas and behaviors to the sort of average white person who benefits from systems that have benefited us our entire lives, to the anti-racist who may also be white but knows that they've benefited from certain systems but is actively working against racism. You know, I, I ran across some words by James Cone the other day mm -hmm. that uh, I reinterpreted for myself um, and, and the reinterpretation that I came out with is uh, my entire theological education was racist. Yeah. And I've never had that realization before. But I, I've always bragged about the fact that I was so fortunate to get to go to the best schools and have the best teachers and things like that and, mm -hmm. and um, end up with being able to do a year of postdoctoral work at Harvard and all that. It was Lily White. Yeah. It was Lily White, even yeah. then. Um, um, and, and my theological education never, ever mentioned a thing about white privilege and, and, and how we rode on the backs of people who made the, the country possible. Right. Never mentioned. 
Yeah, I think that, you know, it's interesting just even thinking about the last 10 to 20 years, there's a whole new language around talking about this stuff. You know, when we talk about, you know, white privilege has been a word that's been in use for some time, but it's emerged in pop culture in a whole different way mm-hmm. that none of us can say that we don't know what it is or, or that none of us can say we haven't heard it, mm-hmm. right? And the pushback often when, when one says, well, um, there are certain privileges afforded to white folks that aren't afforded to everyone, uh, a big pushback can often be, well, I'm white and I grew up poor, right? Privilege is not associated with wealth. Privilege is associated with what opportunities are afforded you because of the color of your skin or your gender or where you find yourself in the social strata. And we would be dishonest in saying that there aren't privileges associated with being born white in this country that are not afforded to all people. They should be. That does not make us special because these privileges should be afforded to any human being walking or not, <laughs> right? That through life, but it it is, but it's a system that's been designed to privilege white folks and descendants of white folks, even wealth, right? You know, the the third step in the eightfold path is right speech, right? And um, I'm going to suggest a title for that Sunday. I love to come up with titles. I know you're really good at it. <laughs> and so what I'm going to propose is the title for our talk should be Dishonesty is the Worst Policy. Uh, yeah. And 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 we got to be honest right. in this time. And one of the things that we need to be honest about is that our political structure, our leadership is dishonest. There's a certain kind of, um, you know, one of the greatest harms done, I think, is done by denial. And when we deny things as they are, so this gets back to right view, right? Right view. I sent you that text the other day going, I think I can figure out how to sum this up. Right view is led with compassion and insight. Those are the tools of the Shambhala warrior saying, I understand that there is suffering I have compassion and I want to gain insight around that suffering. Right view comes in, you know, the cartoon of the the four blind men where they're each touching a part of the elephant and each of them describes what they think the elephant looks like. Well, one has his hand on the trunk, one has his hand on the leg, one has his hand on the ear, one has his hand on the tail or the tusk, right? And each of them describes the elephant differently based on what they're touching. But the whole of it is the combination of those views, right? And, and I think when we, when we are led by the understanding of suffering and compassion around it, our right view, our right attitude, our right speech is guided by those principles. And I, I would love to talk about this a little bit because I think one of the misunderstandings in talking about this. So when reading about right view, for example, there's no one point of view, but it's a multiplicity of views that create, that co-create right view. How we ought to treat folks with compassion and, and justice and kindness. How do we avoid that becoming too relativistic? You know, how, you know, how do we utilize 
compassion to speak to truth, to speak truth to power, if you will, mm. and not make, quote unquote, everything okay. Well, I just had this thought when we were casting about to get a guest to come on this podcast and speak with us, we could get uh, Brooke Summers Perry to come yeah. on and talk about nonviolent communication because um, the way that we avoid being relativistic, I think, is to develop the patience to be inquisitive mm -hmm. of all points of view and ask people, how did you derive that? How did you come to that? And mm -hmm. um, see what what new can emerge out of that and we do we don't do that in this culture because we're too impatient well we we've been so focused right. on ascending and getting and gaining and winning and mm -hmm. all of that that um we've not been patient enough to enter the rules of exploration there is a book that i ran across mm, Somewhere back in the 70s, I'm going to guess, late 70s, it was a book called How to Raise Self-Reliant Children in a Self-Indulgent World. Mm. And that book has gone through many, many printings, and it, it looks like it's been dumbed down, but I, I don't think it has. But it talks about the barriers and the builders that are involved in good communication between people. Mm -hmm. And the builders about being curious about being inquisitive uh take time right. and we haven't taken the time we've been judgmental we've assumed things uh stephen glenn who developed this material um told the story of a little boy who uh was going to have to have a tonsillectomy mm. And um, he overheard his parents talking about their concerns about their finances because they didn't have the money to do this. They were going to have to borrow the money and so forth. And so this little boy decided that he would take his tonsils out himself. And he found uh, a sink auger and put it down his throat to take his tonsils out. Mm. Of course, nearly killed himself and he was in the hospital and um, as he was recovering and his mother was sitting by his side uh, she kept saying to him you shouldn't have done that that was just such a silly thing to do and he said no it wasn't she then this exchange happened several times and then she remembered some of the work that she had done in a seminar with Stephen Glenn and she went back to her son and said I'm curious, every time I say what you did was silly, you say, no, it wasn't. Why do you say that? And he said, well, every time I do something silly, people laugh. Mm -hmm. And nobody laughed about this. So it wasn't silly. Mm -hmm. And it's taking that kind of time to really explore what do you mean? How did you get to that opinion? Uh, how do you embrace that? And to be willing to run into times when you're just going to have a conflict on your on your end right we've all had that you know to to have a relative uh that we love a lot who is a racist yeah and that's a that's a, that's a problem so it seems like we need to be going at at two speeds 
One is the interpersonal, right? And that interpersonal, where we have the stamina and where we have the connection and where we have the capacity, we can have these conversations on an interpersonal level, right? With um, a person who we are close with, who we want to share our understanding and understand their, their worldview a little bit more, that's at the interpersonal level, mm-hmm. right? And, 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 and that's where I think in this capacity, we do that with folks that we are in deeply trusting relationships with or that we do it, that white folks need to be doing it with other white folks. You know, mm-hmm. we, those interpersonal places, it needs to be guided um, by us. And then the, the second speed is the sort of the, the macro level, if you will. And on a macro level, we do need mm-hmm. to be saying, this is wrong, right? This, it is, racism is wrong. To punish someone because of poverty is wrong. Right. right? We, we have to be able to say that and then also be able to tease it out on the personal level. So there's, there's two speeds and maybe, I love this poem that says something about being able to hear two melodies, that always there were two melodies. And, and those are kind of the two melodies we need to be paying attention to. What's needed at the sort of macro prophetic public level and what's needed at the interpersonal micro level. I, I want to say um, a line that, that when Eddie Gloud was giving this talk at Circle Church in, in Charleston that I was listening to, he says, anyone who has an intimate, deeply loving relationship with someone of color could never look at something like that and not see that it's racist. Mm. Because we know because of love that another person is harmed mm-hmm. by seeing a representation of themselves in such a stereotypical way. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that all black people universally feel that way. It just means that we can't see the possibility of that not being racist if we share love with someone in our life that might be hurt by it. Yeah, now, now, I, I, I rem- hear what you say and it takes me back to the 60s -hmm. and in the 60s when our country was so horribly divided and I made up this uh, way of describing the division was between the hard hats and the long hairs Mm -hmm. I mean that's a very stereotypical kind of and what began to make the wall between those two ideological groups crumble was the fact that every extended family began to realize that it had a long hair as part of the family or a hard hat as part of the family. And it was love that made that made that be different. Now, that didn't happen in every case and for all people. I, I personally knew of uh, gay men who, when they came out to their parents, got totally disinherited. I mean, their parents. Yeah, I do too would have nothing to do with them. So I I think too, Holly, we're talking about this theme that I come back to again and again, and what Naramut Amurku talks about in When the Disciple Arrives, we have to have mature 
people on the planet to lead us and to teach us um, what it means to love and to be inclusive and to show us the way. Yeah. And uh, those people we call saints and spiritual teachers and um, we can model ourselves after them. Um, I, I, I think I mentioned to you um, that when somebody asked Jack Cornfield in one of our trainings how, how we should go out and live our lives, he said, pretend that you're a, a, a Dalai Lama in training or in training to be the Dalai Lama. <laughs> and you act yourself into a new way of thinking. I think it's a, a, a good way to think about it. Right. This, it's go, to go back to the sort of being lost in the woods analogy, those are the compass readers and the map readers, the ones who can imagine the topography, if you will, off the page, who can imagine the three-dimensional view of the world or the land from an image on the page. And, you know, when we say something like, well, it all belongs, I think sometimes I can imagine how that can sound really cavalier, really privileged, or really dismissive even. It all belongs, said the white woman who has had relative ease in her life, right? Um, but I, I wonder what that, what we cannot have creativity without also having suffering. When we get trapped by suffering, one of the things that, um, the body keeps the score that Bessel van der Kolk writes about mm -hmm. is that trauma, when we are arrested by trauma and or suffering, it impacts our imagination. It impacts our way of moving forward from the traumatic event or the suffering event. And when our imagination is limited, that's when we're stuck. And so I don't think that suffering has to be non-creative. In fact, when you think about those who have suffered in our society, when you think about that enslaved peoples have produced such incredible creativity that descendants of enslaved people have produced incredible works of literature, incredible works of art, incredible thoughts, incredible offerings to the society as a whole. You think of someone mm -hmm. like um, Jacob Lawrence, the, the artist, or um, Langston Hughes, the poet. You know, these guys came from that era of reconstruction. They brought amazing imaginations to this country. James Baldwin, right? Um, W.E.B. Du Bois. These, these were the first sons and daughters born after slavery. Mm -hmm. So their imagination was not arrested. It doesn't mean that they didn't suffer or that they didn't even get trapped sometimes by the suffering, but it means that their imagination was not lost in the suffering. And I, I think that that's sort of the call on the whole for us right now. We are suffering from being disoriented, from not knowing the way forward, from not knowing how to read the compass. That's a kind mm. of suffering. So we, uh, I don't watch the news much, but I, it's unavoidable and sometimes in places to step aside. And 
I know that um, for maybe the first time in my life since 2016, I have feared the loss of the institutions of liberal democracy. Mm -hmm. I think that when you see what's going on in politics today and the flaunting of the rule of law and um, um, disregarding the, the justice system for personal gain, um, that does not bode well for everybody. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of fear on the part of both liberals and conservatives. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't like those labels. I think they're sure. risky, but right. uh, that, that, we won't have a society if we keep going in the direction that we're going. And I think that there's a little legitimacy to that. So what we can do is to look at what are the things that really enduring societies have done to ensure their own future, if that's what we're concerned about. And um, historically, those two things I'm thinking now about for the Jewish people uh, have been struggling with the answers of who are we and there's no fixed answer to that and what are we to do how are we to live I would add to it although this is really a yeah. risky thing to say and I elaborate on what I think the risk is what is sacred you know what what matters and uh, human dignity human worth matter, human life matters. Mm -hmm. The reason I'm hesitant about the word sacred is that we have a tendency to create sacred things and then secular things. And it gets back to the Descartes split, right? That sacred is here and profane is here, as opposed to maybe they're more interwoven like this. Maybe they're more. Yeah. 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 Uh, a favorite poet of mine said that uh, everything is sacred. We just desecrated some of it yeah well that the holy work then is to really ask ourselves i think in this moment of discomfort and disorientation is do we truly believe that everyone everyone is worthy of a certain kind of dignity and if we say yes to that question then we have to be then we're in right view Right. Mm -hmm. And then we have to be willing to examine what blocks are there that keep me from honoring the dignity of every single person. And if that means that one of the blocks there is that I don't see the problem with um, racial stereotypes on as an advertisement on a box of rice or or syrup, then I have to be willing to go investigate why don't I see that as a problem? Who is that harming? It may not hurt me, but if it's harming someone and I have just said, I want to honor the dignity of all people, then I want to get curious about whose dignity is dis dishonored by that. And, and so it's like this, I think you used the analogy of the spiral last weekend. And I think definitely of spirals as going constantly in two directions up mm -hmm. and down. At the same time. Right, but I also think of them as going constantly inward and constantly outward, yeah. right? So you make it flat and it's, and it's perpetually expanding and perpetually going inward too. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's the work of being on the Eightfold Path. 
is that every moment, if I say I'm entering believing in everyone's dignity, then I want to ask myself, what are my blocks? What do I need to unsee? What do I need to examine that's keeping me from seeing someone's dignity? And I guess the question we have to ask ourselves about those who are protesting, what's the big deal here, right? Like the text you got today, the letter from the guy on LinkedIn, what's the big deal here? We, you and me, also have to say, what's blocking me from understanding that? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I want to say, uh, I want to make this really practical too. And, and I would say that my dear friend, Diane Schinke, did a wonderful service to those who wanted to participate with her. Uh, and, and Sherry and I did this. She took the um, Rescuing Jesus document and did a group study of that. So there's anybody who wanted to come to that study. And I would say that the way that this sort of thing is going to get itself hammered out is for people like you and me and the people who listen to this podcast um, to form groups of people. And if it could be um, an interracial group, that would be wonderful. It would be wonderful. And take a book like Karen Armstrong's 12 Steps to a Compassionate Life and discuss its applicability to our mm -hmm. lives right here and now. When we are right. talking about the integrity that's lacking in politics, um, let's not sweep it away by saying, oh, all politicians lie. No, right. no, it's, uh, there's something at stake here about um, pursuing truth. So Diane did a, a wonderful job with that. I personally think a study group on the compassionate life um, is would would be a wonderful thing. Absolutely, and you know, to walk in the way does require diligence. It requires attention, attention to what is, attention to what is, all the time, everywhere. And of course, there's going to be some that are. Uh, more able to see quote unquote than others but that again i want to go back to that analogy of being in the woods again the compass readers and the map readers need to carry the whole group sometimes you know so that we can sort of take our teeny tiny step forward in consciousness as a whole you know evolution is so damn long <laughs> It really is, you know, this won't happen in our lifetime. But what is the little tiny step we can put yeah. forth in our lifetime to usher consciousness toward? I think it's so ironic that there are people who say they don't believe in evolution while evolution is happening in their own <laughs> bodies. <laughs> That's right. You know, I think about the work of someone like Howard Thurman, right? whose calling was to create an intentional, interracial, interfaith, interhuman congregation in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And that was achieved not by glossing over differences, but by intentionally engaging with differences. And, you know, one of the things that he and his partners in establishing 
or the fellowship for all people in San Francisco was break bread together. They ate together. They were in each other's spaces and, and parsing through what does it look like to have a beloved community? What the Bible might call the new Jerusalem, right? What does that look like? And as you say, I think it requires a lot of patience and a lot of willingness to look at our blind spots and to see what blockages we have when we look in the mirror. Well, you know, I, I knew that you make fun of me about this and so does everybody else, but that's okay. I can what? take it. <laughs> Your jet, which no, one? <laughs> uh, this is why I keep returning all the time to the importance mm -hmm. of spiritual practice. We make fun of you only because we know it to be only too true. <laughs> what we're really doing is going, don't ask me how I'm doing in my spiritual well, I'm practice. I'm going to keep nagging you about that. And one of the aspects yeah. of spiritual practice is, is, is growing intellectually at the knowledge mm -hmm. and information level and at the wisdom and understanding level about what does it mean to be a human being. And, and I think it's amazing that with all our accomplishments, yeah. we know, so many people know next to nothing about what it means to be a human being. People think that, you know, this is my separate self and that just is in the Buddhist Christian traditions, that's nonsense. It's not it's not true. So we have to, you know, I, I read uh, one of the first books I read by Dharma or Muraku. Mm -hmm. uh, and we have to spend time deconstructing so much when that's being done for us. Right. Which book was that? Was that Quantum Theology? Uh, it's a, um, about adult faith. Okay. He wrote yeah. a book called Adult Faith. I talked to Michael Morwood and asked him if he knew a Muraku. And he said, oh, yes. Yeah, do we're in the same spiritual formation group or something together? He said, "Just an amazing to me that he comes out with a book almost every year." That's that's that's, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah, he's he's definitely prolific. Yeah, well, you know, you've said before in in different settings and different talks is one of the things that people will bring sometimes to your office is, "I know I need to change. I know I want more wisdom." but I don't really want to change. Right. Don't tell me I have to change my life. And that's, I think one of the greatest things that's the, when I said on Sunday, like this is the hardest, easiest thing. It is simple. The way is simple, but it is hard to implement because it requires us to change some of our boxed in behaviors that keep us safe. Change, change is very destabilizing to people, to all people, all people. But it's, you know, I think one of the things that we are called into being right now is to explore a little bit about what it means to not belong. And we're so tied to our groups of belonging, whether that be our family of origin, the community in which we live, the church we go to, our race, our language, our rituals. We're tied to these tribal identities. And I think one of the things to grow from is what would it look like if I weren't so tied to those? And the scary part is that we become a little bit like a satellite orbiting on its own. And we don't know where gravity is going to pull us next. 
So in the Christian tradition, Jesus says, if you do not hate father and mother and you cannot follow me, now he, he taught love. So he, that, what he meant by that, I think, is that if you're bound to something that keeps you from following, that binding is causing you not to be free, not to be liberated, and um, be careful of what binds you. Yeah. For those people who have found an ideology or a way of life that they think works for them, and that's understandable, they're going to safeguard that. Mm -hmm. And so the way I think that we can step outside of that is to really see enlightened self-interest. That's how I understand the no separate self, that what is good for the for the most people, what is good for all is good for me. In other words, that, that's where there's no separate self. It's not about my individual self-interest, but about this sort of collective. I, I, I think that one of the, the things that I have written down where I can see it on a regular basis in my, my own daily practice is that I cannot be all that I am meant to be unless you are free to be all you were meant to be. That's right. As long and as any one of us is not free, all of us are all not free. All of us, that's right. Yeah, yeah. This, you know, this, um, I want to take it back to what the question we started with, which is what, when we are in unalignment with someone, how do we converse how do we bring those with whom we are not alike to the table? And I think it is with that, right? It is with saying, you are welcome here and you, and we are all going to be pushed. We are all going to be pushed in this direction mm -hmm. toward the highest good for the most people. And so I think part of it is being willing to to be held accountable and to hold others accountable. You know, I think sometimes we do have to call a spade a spade. Some things are racist and that needs to be directly spoken to. Again, when I think of right view, we can say that is racist mm -hmm. without judging the person. We just have to say right. this is racist, but there's also a way to move out of that. Well, I, I think you said that you're, uh, many of the things that we're moving toward, we will not see in our lifetime. But we have to move in that direction. Yeah. I think of the, the wisdom of traditional knowledge, so that might include um, indigenous wisdom or Native American wisdom, which is always in consciousness to seven generations before and seven generations ahead. I also think of the way of... Um, aspects of nature, mm -hmm. the starlings that fly in those magnificent ballet-like swarms, right? They're just, they're like ribbons mm -hmm. in the air. Yeah. And the starling is cognizant of the seven starlings to its left and the seven starlings to its right. Who figured that out? Who knows the understanding of how murmurations work, right? But, yeah. but that is, that murmuration we are we have that capacity as humans too to operate in murmurations to think of the seven people to our left and the seven people to our right and before we know it 
the whole is considered. That's no separate self. You know, I'm thinking now that maybe we should revisit on Sunday where we ended up with about uh, talking about this is this way because that is that way. If we want the future to be different mm -hmm. in a certain way, we're going to have to behave differently now. That's karma. Karma is doing mm -hmm. now what we want to be true for the future. When I took the 10 day meditation training, and I'll say more about this when we get to write speech because we had to be absolutely silent for 10 days. And uh, many of my friends were saying how difficult that would be for me. Uh, one even said, I know what Bill will say right before he goes in for the first sit. Did you hear the one about blah, blah, blah? <laughs> I would tell a joke. But I was sitting in meditation and I remembered that Jack Cornfield had said in training the mind, um, it's like training a, a puppy dog to paper. And you, you know, when the puppy put the puppy on the paper, which is I now know not a good way to train the dog, but put the puppy on the paper and the puppy wanders away. You don't beat the dog. You gently bring the dog back to the paper. Same thing with the mind. And um, so I was sitting there and observing my mind jump around like he could not believe the intense experience of monkey mind in the first few days of that experience. And I sort of broke out laughing once because I, I had this thought about the dog and bringing the dog back and then all of these things. And I thought, oh my goodness, my, my karma has run over my dogma. Yeah. It was it was something else, but becoming aware of what we think about what our reactions are and just calm down, grow up, clean up, show up, here you work. Yeah, we for, for sure could use habituated reflection. I, we, we, uh, we were talking a little bit about the child, the human development process in terms of sort of societal development and as a society, meaning as a human species, we may just be entering the adolescent phase of who am I? What do I think? How am I, you know, how am I different from you? How am I like you? How am I different from my family of origin? How am I like my family of origin? Mm -hmm. We, we may just be in the I phase mm -hmm. and, and that's, so that means we've got a ways to go, We do, you know, and it's an important phase to understand the I among the many. However, it requires some intentional practice around reflection and introspection. And I think that's where we are. I think we'll um, talk more about that on Sunday. <laughs> okay. We'll be, we'll be talking Sunday uh, about responding to a genuine altar call, A-L-T-E-R, not A-L-T-A-R call. So... I want to say you're the best at coming up with titles and I love your preacher jokes. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> well, this has been fun and I will see you on Sunday. Okay. Sounds good. Bye. Thanks for joining us for episode five of In Between, an ordinary life podcast by Holly Headley and Bill Curley. 
This one was recorded on June 24, 2020, and can be found on our website at OrdinaryLife.org or wherever you download podcasts.